which are still under the sun. And again, as Kim was praying, I reminded, did we need any more reminder like we had yesterday that under the sun is a very unhappy business to be about? It's not good to be on this planet on days like yesterday. But guess what? One day, one day, it'll all, it'll all be a memory. <clears throat> and we're one day closer to that day. David Nelson, a wide receiver for the New York Jets, was in Haiti in 2012 doing some volunteering after the earthquake. He found a small, malnourished boy, about four years old, trapped in some rebar. He spent a while to get him out, and when he got him out, he offered him food, he offered him water, he offered him candy, he offered him toys, he offered him games, and the little boy refused them all. And he looked at him and he said, well, what is it you want? And the little boy held up his hands and in perfect English said, hold me. So he did. And David said that he held him for at least five minutes. He said, and it was the greatest five minutes of his entire life. And it changed him. He felt that going to Haiti, he felt that he had been living life. And these are his words, not mine. His life was striving after vanity. And so he was there volunteering in the first place. But that five minutes took that volunteering into what he now has as a life's vocation. Before he left Haiti, he and his brother rented a three-bedroom house in Port-au-Prince with the idea that they would begin an orphanage. And they were back uh, home, and they're still putting it all together, and they were, they were you know, doing hiring and, and, and of staff and things like that. When they got a phone call last June, there was an orphanage in Haiti, but it was only an orphanage by name. It really was there only to bilk American relief money out of uh, agencies. And the money never found its way into the welfare of these nine children that were there. Infants through six years old. Nine of them. He said nine of them. They got the phone call saying nine of them were dying. So he and his brother immediately went down there. And under threat of gun violence. They weren't holding guns on them, but said, told them that we would show up later with guns if you don't put these kids back. Both David and his brother picked up those kids and carried them out of that quote-unquote orphanage to their house that they own today. And here, his brother and him, both single, are now raising nine Haitian kids who they plan to adopt. And David will tell you that his body lives in a condo in suburban New Jersey and does amazing things on a football field every Sunday. But his heart is in Port-au-Prince with those nine kids. It's an amazing thing when compassion is allowed to rule under the sun. It's an amazing thing. It's even more amazing when it finds itself... Uh, in the world as it is. 
I'm not sure of David's background. I don't know what it is, but I do know during this whole film clip, he never mentioned God or anything. All he mentioned was the moving of his spirit and his heart in the face of those little children. It's really funny, too. He knows all their names, all nine of them. He can recite them to you. And they ask him what their favorite team is. And it's funny to see these nine little Haitian kids do that Jets cheer. J-E-T-S. Jets, Jets, Jets. <laughs> when compassion is allowed to rule under the sun, it is the only thing that brightens what is happening under the sun. But today in Ecclesiastes 4, if you want to turn there, the Kohelet, the teacher, he is not finding any of it. He is finding that it's lacking and it's what disturbs him most about under the sun is what he sees happening. Verse 1, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power with what? with no one to comfort them. The word he chooses is very telling in the poetry. In a verse of maybe 12 or 15 words, this one comes up three times. Oppressions, oppressed, and what? And oppressors. In his poetry, the Kohelet is letting us know what he thinks of life under the sun. And when he sees it, this is all he sees. If he doesn't see the oppression, he sees the oppressors. If he doesn't see the oppressed, he sees the oppressions they're going through. Nothing but what? Nothing but oppression. This is what bothers him. But it doesn't bother him the most about what it is under the sun. Because notice, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions. Look, the tears of the oppressed and on the side of their oppressors was power. Now, if this was Jeremiah, if this was Isaiah... If this was Ezekiel, what would they be doing? What would they add? What would Micah add to a verse like this? He'd say, free them. Put their shoes on them. Clothe them. Feed them. The prophets would have a call to action. But the teacher looks and just says, it's just part of being under the sun. He throws up his hands. It's not that he's not moved by the oppression. It's not that he's not moved that this is what's happening. But by not giving us a call to action, there is no rah-rah here. There is no, hey, we can do it. Come on, if we just band together, if we just all chip in a little money, if we all do this, we could do something about this. The Kohelet says, no, not under the sun. This isn't what bothers him the most. The tears of the oppressed is not what moves him the most. What moves him the most is that he may decide that maybe, just maybe, he might have been part of the oppression. Because remember what the Kohelet was. He's a teacher. He's a preacher. He's a gatherer. He gathers the people together to give the words, to just give words. That's what Kohelet means, a giver of words. And that's why it's translated as the teacher or the preacher. But remember, he was once king. Of all Israel. And as a matter of fact, when he was king of Israel, Israel was never ever at their highest of prosperity. This was it. Israel was never ever more prosperous than it was under Solomon. But we talked a little bit about this before, and we're probably going to close with this. But I see Ecclesiastes as Solomon's confession. 
And when he looks back and he looks back at the warning that Samuel told them of why they don't want a king, it ends this way. He says, he'll take one tenth of your flocks and it's that last line that gets me. And you shall be his what? You shall be his slaves. Now, I understand that Second Kings points out that he never enslaved any Israelite in what he did. He used thousands, maybe millions of slaves to get done what he needed to get done. The greatest engineering feats in all of Israel, the building of the Milo, the building of the temple, all of that. But it was all done with what? It was all done with slave labor. Now, he may not have enslaved any Israelite to do that, but he used slaves. And I think in this particular context, it doesn't matter to him. I really believe that Ecclesiastes is his confession. And he sees the tears of the oppressed and he throws up his hands and he says, you know what? I was part of this too. I was part of this too. Now, he may not have enslaved Israelites for slave labor, but guess what he did do? Your father, they say, telling his son Rehoboam after Solomon dies, your father made our what? Made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke. It doesn't sound like he was too easy on the Israelites either. And it may not have been labor slavery, but it certainly was economic slavery. What are they saying? He taxed the snot out of us. And that's why there's that list of what Solomon took in every day. Now, he may have done better with it than kings who had come before him. Actually, he's only the third one in all Israel, but any king that that we're talking about, any time since there's been kings in history, he may have done better with it. But in the end, this is what's left. In the end, this is how his people, who were at the most prosperous, come to his son. This is what Solomon is remembered for. And I think by the time Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, he knows it. He knows it. Your father made our yoke heavy. He taxed them. He taxed them. This is what bothers him. It's not the oppressed, the oppressions, and the oppressor. Notice what else he repeats in here. There is no one to what? There's no one to comfort them. See, he uses it twice. He uses oppression three times, and then twice he says there is no one to comfort them. On, on the side of their oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. No one gets any comfort. Certainly the people in power get no comfort, and the people that are oppressed get no comfort. Nobody what? Nobody cares. This is what he sees. And by the way, this is on his watch, is what he's saying. This is Israel on my watch. Remember we talked about this the second week. This was supposed to be different. His monarchy was supposed to be different. When God said, what do you want? You want power? You want riches? Solomon asked for neither. He asked for what? He asked for wisdom. He wanted to make a difference. He wanted to be different than his father. He wanted to be, well, he wanted to be like his father in certain aspects. He wanted to be different from Saul. He definitely wanted to be different from all other monarchs of of the kingdom surrounding him. And then when he tried, when he put that wisdom to use, what did he say? Even the wisdom is what? It's a vexation. It's a vexation. 
Even the wisest man in the world can't trump nature. Wisdom does not overcome nature. Willpower does not overcome nature. The preacher at the end of his life is looking back saying, I thought I had it, but it's all a vexation. So this is what bothers him the most, is that there is no one else. There's no one to give comfort. Nobody cares. See, the problem with the the monarchy is that oppression is a must. There must be some oppression for a king to even exist on a throne. You with me? Think about that statement for a minute. Somebody had to be oppressed somewhere in order to have a monarch. Somebody had to be oppressed somewhere in order to have a monarch. Certainly somebody has to be oppressed somewhere in order to have a dictator. The one government that's supposed to take care of that, and, and, and history will judge whether or not we've accomplished it, but this is the one form of government that is supposed to eliminate that. This is what the fathers looked at. Can we do it? Can we put somebody in power without having to oppress somebody else? And I thank God we live here in a place that's trying. It's a hard experiment, isn't it? Democracy. It's a hard experiment. I believe it's worth it. What does the Churchill said? Democracy is the worst form of government, if not for all the others. So the mistreatment of the weak deeply troubles him. He calls no social reform, but he accepts oppression as just a sad fact of life. He writes it off as he has done before with the sorrow and the futility and the vanity and the chasing after wind as saying, this is just life under the sun. Pastor Waltz pointed that out to us. The wisest man who ever lived is looking at us saying, face it. This is what it's like. So you might as well do what? Might as well enjoy it as best you can. I still think the conclusion that comes is that the way that we enjoy it is that we do it together. But we'll talk about that in a bit. But the repetition of they have no comforter. He accepts that oppression is inevitable and unavoidable under the sun. But what accepts him most is that nobody seems to care. Israel demands a king. Why? What was their reasoning? We have to have a king. Why do they want one? So we can be like everyone else. And what is everyone else doing to Israel when Israel encounters them? They are oppressing them. Israel is saying, we will fight oppression with what? With oppression. Therein lies the problem under the sun. Oppression begets oppression. The only way to put down oppression is to become more oppressive. The problem with violence, according to Dr. King, is that it is an ever-descending spiral. That oppression or violence begets oppression and violence. And this is what the Kohelet is telling us. 3,000 years. So he accepts that it's inevitable. But Israel demands a king because they think now that they can oppress the others before they get oppressed. Every time we come up against the Philistines, 
Every time we get our rears kicked. And the reason why is that big guy standing out in front. That guy that they call king. (laughs) You do understand that the whole reason they picked Saul was because he was taller than everybody else. They didn't notice that he didn't want to be king. They didn't notice that he was a coward. But he was bigger. He was taller. But this is why they want a king. So that they can play the game under the sun. And the game is called oppression. And it has oppressed and it has oppressors. And if you don't oppress, you're going to be an oppressed. Welcome to under the sun. Y'all with me? Y'all depressed about the oppressed? See, God had in mind something different. Now, this goes all the way back to the covenant series. I love how all this comes together and how it keeps going back. This goes all the way back to the covenant series. What did God want? What did God want for the rulership of Israel? Himself. He was to be king, right? He invited him up the mountain. Come on up the mountain. You and I will walk and talk together. So far, only a couple people have wanted to do it, including Moses. And Moses pleads with Israel that day, come on up. And they refuse. Says, okay, puts in the priesthood. So the priesthood separates the people even further. It's now a group of people who are supposed to walk and talk with God. By the way, they don't want to do it any more than they do. If they'd have just come up the mountain, then God could have been their king. God could have been their ruler. And that's what he always wanted. In fact, when when they demand a king, Samuel is very upset. And God tells Samuel, don't worry, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. I'll give them what they want. They shouldn't want it, but I'll give them what they want. But with God as ruler, when God walks and talks, is there oppression? Actually, no. And it's reflected in the laws that he began to give them. He said, if you just let me rule. If you let me and Moses rule and do it the way that we want to do it, this is what it'll look like. He gave them laws like this in in Deuteronomy 24. He says, you shall not deprive a resident alien or a what? Or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment and pledge. Orphans and widows and aliens. Orphans, widows and aliens. The three most vulnerable people walking around on the earth that day. In in, in his day, if you think about it, they're still the three most vulnerable people on the planet. And he said, you will not deprive them of what? Of justice. And who is he speaking to? You. The people. Israel. You guys. You will not deprive them of justice. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. Remember, you were one of them once. How did it feel to be oppressed? Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to live this way. You will not what? You will not oppress. And you especially will not oppress those who can't afford to be oppressed. You'll speak up for those who have no voice. You'll speak up for the ones who are too weak to speak. 
When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back to get it. Oops, forgot a whole sheaf. Do you know how big those sheaves were? Huge. This big around. A lot of wheat in them. ton of wheat. If you forgot it, what did he say to do with it? Leave it. Don't go get it. Who did he leave it for? It'll be left for who? For the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. In other words, when you beat the trees and the olives fall down, don't climb up in the trees and strip off what's left. Leave it. Leave it for who? For the orphan, for the widow, for the alien. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And remember, do all this because you were once slaves in Egypt. You see what life would have been like had they wanted God as their king. Because God isn't merely loving. God is love. And when God lives in the presence of people, stuff happens. And one thing that does not happen is oppression. There's nobody left behind when God walks with his people. There is nobody left behind when God sits on a throne in rulership. God had in mind something completely different. So what happened to them when they wanted the monarch? See, something happened. Pastor Wald had this brilliant idea. This brilliant thing that he talked about the first one, the opening one. It's the one that I've kept on. You know, every now and then you get something that just, you know, gnaws, gnaws at your head like a termite, you know. But it was a brilliant point. He pointed out that the nation lived vicariously through Solomon. When you get a king, when you get a ruler, the nation then begins to live vicariously through him. Yeah, Solomon's rich. And yeah, he taxed the heck out of me in order for him to be rich. But they didn't care. Because it was a sense of nationalism. And everyone was oppressed anyway. Everyone was oppressed anyway. So they begin to live vicariously through them. So they do not remember at all that they were slaves. Now they're just a different kind of slave. They're an economic slave to a selfish monarch. Now the selfish monarch is trying not to be selfish. He's trying to be wise. But when he tried, he writes about it later saying, even my wisdom is a vexation. Wisdom does not trump my nature. So what happens to the oppressed in a society of oppressed people? They continue to be oppressed. Because the oppressed don't care about the other oppressed because they're oppressed themselves. And since they're living vicariously through the king, what do they do when it comes to the welfare of those who can't be heard? Let the king do something about it. And by the way, in our history, in human history, what king has been very concerned about those who don't have a voice? Usually not too many. Hence, the revolutions that we've had. Which, by the way, revolutions are the oppressed finally getting to what? 
to oppress. Vanity, vanity, a chasing after wind. Now, come on, I, 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 you know, Yankee Doodle Dandy still sounds real good to me on the 4th of July. But what did we have to do in order to no longer be oppressed? We had to throw it off with our own kind of oppression. And this is what the Kohelet is saying. This is the best you can hope for under the sun. What does he want you to do right now? What is he asking? He's not asking for anything. What he's wanting us to do is to actually throw up our hands and say, you know what? There's nothing I can do. I am who I am. We are who we are. Under the sun is under the sun. And maybe, just maybe, when all of this has has taken its toll, Maybe when all of it is taken as toll or somewhere in the alignment of our life, as this life continues down this track where we end up like the animals, that somewhere along the line, you and I realize, you know what? I think I need God. I think I need Jesus to do something about this. And maybe with our arms up in surrender, we go and we fall on our knees and say, Lord, You've got to do something about this under the sun. And he told us so long ago that he would and that he did and that he will continue to do so. But the oppressed forgets that they were once slaves. The oppressors forget that they were once slaves. They forget the oppression that they, that they uh, went through. And when they have a chance to oppress, they always seem to be able to. The comment on history with kings, absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. That even the wisest man in the world, even the one that should have had the most willpower, the one that could have done it, the one that didn't ask for selfishness when it was given to him and asked for wisdom, he said, even I couldn't do it. Even wisdom is a chasing after the wind. There's a ton of illustrations here. You know where we could go with this, right? There's more than one kind of oppression. There's physical oppression. There's violent oppression, yes. There's spiritual oppression. There's economic oppression. There's religious oppression. You know, somebody, so many people join churches just because they can be right. More right than somebody else. And they begin to carry out and hold a particular standard. And when they do it better than someone else, guess what they get to do to somebody else? Oppress them. And Mickey's hand keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And the only one that can come in is the one that's holding up Mickey's hand. And the fundamentalists and the extremists in any religion, not just Christianity, not just Adventism, not just Islam, but any fundamentalist, any extremist. That's what they continue to do is to convince the people that you can't live up to Mickey's hand. Only I can. So you can follow me. And when they get that kind of power, guess what they do? They oppress. 
What Solomon is trying to tell us is that the oppression is everywhere under the sun. And if the church is under the sun, guess what? Someone's getting oppressed. Not at Grace Point. Tongue in cheek. So he said, if we all remembered, there's something that he says a little later in the, in the chapter. He says, if we all remembered something, he said, if we all remembered that two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up the other. If two are around, at least those two have a chance to comfort. See, he looks at the world and he sees no what? He sees no comfort. He sees only oppression. Because everybody individually is carrying out their lives and they're trying to get from point A to point B. And by the way, they're trying to do it under the sun in a very violent place. They're trying to protect themselves. And we all protect ourselves. You have to, if, if, if there's one thing, if you... Okay. Do you want me to go ahead and pick on the church a little bit? If there's one thing that has bothered me about our church for so long is how individualistic the doctrine seems to come across. Not one amen. We don't do it together. We don't do it together. We go home and we study by ourselves. We pray by ourselves. And we come here and we do the the, the corporate worship. But we don't talk about our struggles. We don't get together. We don't do it together. And when we do, we get uncomfortable with hearing about how someone else may be struggling. And we just kind of go. And the reason that we're uncomfortable is because we're struggling with the same thing, but we can't admit it. We can't say it. So what do we do? We go home and we try harder. Until one day we figure out that we can't do it. And at that point, you have a choice. You have a choice. And unfortunately, under the sun, more people choose to walk away than to throw up their arms and come to Jesus and come to the body and keep coming and try and change it. Solomon reminds us that this is all we got. And if we continue to try to do this by ourselves, then we're missing the one pleasure that we can have under the sun. And that is that we can do this together. Under the sun really, really is horrible. It's an unhappy business. Alone. But if you do it together, guess what? It's still an unhappy business, but you're together. And there's an opportunity for at least one or at least two at any given moment to comfort the other. That's why this is here. For if they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to one who is what? Is alone because he falls and does not have another to help. I've been there. I've been there where I've fallen and I've fallen alone because I thought for sure, I thought absolutely sure that there's no way the church would ever understand what I'm going through because nobody is going through what I'm going through because nobody ever says it. I understand now that I was sitting in a room full of 250 people and you don't want to stand up in a room full of 250 people and tell them what you're struggling with. But the first time that I was in a small group and I heard somebody echo what I was going through, I got up and sang the doxology and I didn't even know the doxology. 
This is the context with this. If two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? God is trying to get across to us. It's the whole reason why I created you. Because I can't love by myself. God's busting at the, at the seams of the universe looking for somebody to love. So he creates children that he can love. It's all he ever wanted. That one might prevail against another. Two will withstand one and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We very rarely use this verse in context. Where do you hear it the most? Marcus, Michelle, where do you hear it the most? (laughs) Yes, it was in your wedding sermon. And Pam and John, it was in yours. And Chris and Catherine, it was in yours. It's my favorite verse to use. Because I have this clever little thing where I say one plus one plus one equals one. Jesus plus you and him equal one. A threefold cord is not easily broken. I'm sorry, though. I've taken it completely out of context. It's not the context of this verse. Because the tragic thing about this verse is that single people hear it all the time and they think that it only applies to them. But actually, this applies to all of us. That's why it's a threefold cord. Because there are only two people there. They can't make up a threefold cord. He's talking about all of us. You with me? So I'm going to still use it in my wedding sermon. But don't worry, I won't stop the wedding in order to explain it to everybody. It still works. But if you've been single and you've read this and you think that you can't experience this because you are single, then the context is wrong. And I'm telling you right now, this was written for all of us, married or not. Mutual caring is the only solution to oppression. Us together, one to comfort another, is the only thing we've got under the sun. It's all we have is what he's telling us. The oppressed, the oppression, the oppressors leave the Kohelet with one conclusion. He says, if we're going to do this alone and there is nobody left to comfort. By the way, the only reason that he can say that there's no one left to comfort is because they're all individually trying to get from point A to point B. They're all individually trying to protect themselves. You can have a little bit of mine, but don't take my pie. He says, this is the reason. And if that's the way you're going to do it, if you're not going to be a threefold cord, if you're not going to comfort one another, then guess what? We're better off what? We're better off dead. And I thought the dead who had already died more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Ouch. If we're going to try to do this alone, he said, guess what? You're better off what? You're better off dead. And then, yes, he adds later, because the dead know that they're going to die, but the dead, I mean, the the dying know they're going to die, but the dead know what? The dead know nothing. And, yeah, you can apply this to church, and I'll go ahead and go there right now. If you're going to do this alone, we're better off dead. We're better off dead in our sins, as Paul put it. We can't do it alone. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. 
No such thing as a hermit Seventh-day Adventist. That one quite, only a couple of amens there. He's saying that if we're going to try this alone, you're better off what? Better off dead. Because under the sun, it doesn't happen. Under the sun, it doesn't happen. Being alone, living for self, along with human nature, is all the ingredients that under the sun needs to make oppression. Those are the ingredients. Being alone, human nature, no one to comfort. Those are all the ingredients for oppression. You will either be the oppressed, the oppressor, or you will suffer oppression, is what he's saying. Is it making sense? Is Solomon's wisdom coming through? This isn't mine. This isn't my wisdom. This is Solomon's. This is the gift that God gave him. This is why he's speaking today. By the way, this is why this book still resonates with us nearly 3,000 years later. We avoid it because we don't, we don't want to be depressed. But when we get into it, we find Solomon's wisdom. And hopefully when we're done, we find a reason to go on under the sun. Oh, he's going to pick on us too. I saw the vanity under the sun, the case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers, yet there's no end to all their toil and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For who am I, for whom am I toiling, they ask, depriving, depriving myself of pleasure. This is also vanity and an unhappy business. If you're doing this and you have nobody to do it for, what's he telling you? You're wasting your time. It's vanity. You kill yourself. And we look at that and we say, okay, okay. So if I'm single and I'm working, is he talking about me? No. All he's saying is find a purpose. If you don't have a family to do it for, to give it to, find somebody to do it for or give it to. Then he picks on everybody who works. I thought it was just going to leave the single people, right? No, it picks on everybody. And I saw all toil and all skill and work come from what? From one person's envy of another. The only reason we do it, deep down inside, you and I may not be convicted of it yet. I read that and I say, no, no. I've got a ready excuse for why I work. I want to make a better contribution to society. I want to make a better contribution to church. I work for my family. I work to feed them. I work to do all those things. Solomon says, guess what? That isn't why you do it at all. You do it because you envy another person. This is also a what? A vanity and a chasing after the wind. If we work, and, and, and the commentaries that I read was that this may be a commentary against overworking. I don't think so. I think this is what Solomon is saying is this is who we are. And yes, our families may benefit. But he says, check yourself, check your true motive for why you're doing it. And you'll find that you're doing it because you're envying somebody else. And if you want a confession, you're looking at someone who is absolutely guilty of that. You can't sit in my office next to his and not go too far without saying that sometimes my motivation is because I envy what he is and what he can do.
Walt's an amazing, amazing spiritual leader. But man, he ticks me off sometimes. Because <laughs> I look at him and I say, dang. He's just a constant pointing out that some days, some days, I do it just because I want to be better than him. And Solomon says, you know what, man? It's all vanity. Fools fold their hands and consume their own flesh. He says, don't not work. So you'd read that to the conclusion and they'd say, okay, well, let's not do it at all then. He goes, no, you'll consume your own flesh. You'll cannibalize yourself. You'll cannibalize your self-worth. Better is a handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after wind. He says, find your motive. And if you can't find one outside yourself, then try and find one. Pray to find a motive outside yourself. Find someone else to live for. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. Let's find our orphanage in Haiti. Let's find somewhere. Let's find what we can do for our own neighborhood. And he says, you know, if you're doing it to, to strive after somebody else, if you're doing it to strive after somebody else, he says, don't, don't do it. Because you know what? Even somebody from prison can become king and he can be the most popular king ever. And then as time goes on, there are a group of people who don't find him so popular. And in the end, all those people whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a chasing after the wind. If you're doing it, coveting someone else, the way that they can do it, or wanting to be better than someone else, or wanting to have something that someone else has, he says, guess what? Popularity under the sun is a fleeting thing. Because like I said, he's writing this at the end of his life. And at the beginning, everybody was on his side. And now he finds not so much. Real quick. What is he saying? Jesus in Matthew 24 told us what to look out for in the end times. This is what it will be like in the end. He, says. he actually answers two questions because the disciples ask him two questions, by the way. He says the temple will be torn down and the disciples are kind of blown away by that. And they ask him two questions. They say, wow, what will be the signs of this and what will be the sign of the end of the age and your coming? So they ask him two questions. What's the signs of the tearing down of the temple? And what's the sign of the end of the world? By the way, for the rabbis back then, it was both. It was only one thing. They thought that if the temple truly was torn down, it would bring about the end of the world. But Jesus answers both questions for him. And he talks about false prophets, and he talks about earthquakes, and he talks about uh, wars, and he talks about rumors of wars, and he talks about all those things. But he ends them with saying, you know what? But those are just the birth pangs. It's not quite the end. Then he says this, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow what? Will grow cold. The number one sign of living in the end time is that people no longer care for one another. Solomon looks and he says, there is nobody to comfort anybody. There is nobody who cares. So remember in Revelation 14, 
when you and I are called out as a people, when this church is called out as an end time people, and we say, what is, what is our battle? What is our battle against this? And it's supposed to be that the end time people are identified by those who have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God, right? Well, by the way, what is the testimony of Jesus? What does it mean to keep the commandments of God? Jesus himself said, in order to keep the commandments, you must love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am not saying that the Sabbath has nothing to do with that end time message in Revelation 14, but you and I as a church are going to have to come to the fact that if we're going to combat this, then what we do is we need to begin to love God and love each other as, we, as he loves us. Someday they'll get a point to where the Sabbath is going to identify itself in that. By the way, what is the Sabbath without love? Would Solomon and Paul get together and say, you know what? Clanging gong, tinkling cymbal, vanity, and a chasing after the wind. It's why we're here. You and I have oppression to fight. And the way that we do it is that we do it together. And we do it every time somebody falls down and we pick up another. And we do it to stay together and to keep warm, to keep our love from growing what? To keep it from going cold. And yes, we remember the Sabbath, but there's one other thing that we remember. And the only reason why we remember the Sabbath is because we were once slaves in Egypt. We were once slaves in Egypt. And God rescued us with a mighty hand and a strong arm. And this is why we remember the Sabbath. I'd love to bring the Kohelet here and to say, look, we're trying. And I think Solomon would say, good, keep trying. Because it's still an unhappy business under the sun. But if we do it together, we can make the best of it. So my appeal is find the groups where we can love one another. Find the groups where we can keep warm together. And I'll tell you, as I always tell you, the reason we don't have more groups is we don't have more leaders. And if God is moving on you to lead, come to me. I, I, I can train you to lead a group in 10 minutes. Really? Ask Kristen. Right? We were at Starbucks. It took 35, but we were at Starbucks. So. How's your group doing? You keeping each other warm? We can, we can do it. We could eliminate the oppression under the sun. Actually, we won't be able to eliminate it completely. But one day, <laughs> one day, it will be. Until then, it's you and me. Let's keep warm. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for the wisdom of the preacher today. It's amazing how years and years of wisdom can trickle down for us, touch us where we are. And I just ask that it do touch this family, that it touch all of us. Lord, help us to recognize the oppression under our very nose. And may we be the ones that would bring the comfort.
I thank you that you've placed us in a neighborhood that needs it. I thank you that there are groups that have sought us out to receive that comfort. And I just ask that we always continue to be here for them, that we be here for them and we be here for each other. I thank you for the love that you give us. And I just ask as these, this family goes forth that your love would exist, that it would thrive, and that it would touch somebody out there this week. And then you can bring us back together and that we could be warm under the sun. Bless this family, Lord, and keep them. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.